This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I have my partner, Mallory Peacock. Mallory, how are you doing today? Good, good. I'm just uh, working away. I'm excited to be back on the podcast. Me too. We've, you know, we've had a lot of great guests lately, but we usually do, you know, an internal, some, you and Sonia, I mean, either you or Sonia every month. And uh, you both have been so busy. It's been, you've been hard to book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's what things have really picked up, um, you know, since things opened up after COVID. And unfortunately, it looks like we had a, a brief reprieve and now things are starting to slow down again. So, you know, I'm a little disappointed about that. Yeah, me too. But hopefully numbers start going down again and we all get back to normal life. Uh, that's my big wish. But uh, nothing we can do about that today. But there is something we have been working on. This is a big project we've been doing uh, as a group in our firm. And that's to develop a set of draft minimum standards to be followed in all cases. Why did we do that? Yeah. So, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about how we work up a case and what our you know, goals are and what our ideal standards are for working up a case. And, you know, our ideal standards work in every case, but you have to consider what the cost of doing a lot of internal work on cases, spending a lot of money on them. I mean, some cases you just can't spend that kind of money, but what we wanted is something that wasn't ideal, but was something that we could track within the firm to make sure cases are moving along at a pace that we felt comfortable with. And so what we wanted to come up with is a group of standards that one, we can track, um, but two, tell us how the case is coming along and how it's moving along so that we can make sure that we're really pushing it as quickly as we possibly can, um, you know, within the bounds of the rules and within the bounds of our dockets, you know, I mean, so that you're not spending all your time working on one case, but you can move things at a pace that makes sense. Yeah, and I actually haven't talked to you about this yet, but I think I'm going to have a kind of a two set of of standards. So we're going to have the minimum ones, which we're going to talk about today, and then we're going to have kind of an ideal average that I want people ideally to meet. And so we'll have like a red, yellow, green system. So if you don't meet one or more minimum standards in a given month, then you'd have a red score on that area. But then if your average is over, what you know, what we want our so let's just say like our minimum standard is, you know, you have to send discovery out within 30 days, you know, of the first date you can, but ideally it's 15. So, you know, you'd be red if you went on a case without sending discovery after 30 days. Uh, you'd be yellow as long as you had met the minimum and all, but then you'd get a green uh, if it was an average of like 15 days. So we can do something to kind of encourage people to go above and beyond the minimums. Yeah, I like that because I think, you know, what we don't want with the minimum standard is people to fall into being too comfortable with just meeting the minimum standards. They're minimum, just, you know, things you must do in cases um, if you're going to work at this firm. But what you don't want is people to just tick off the boxes of the minimums and not think about, you know, ideally how to work up the case or what, what you can do to really, really push it if you have the time. One thing we did with these minimum standards is I just didn't write them myself or you and I just didn't come together and write them ourselves, but we involved the entire firm. Why is that? Well, by the entire firm, all the lawyers at the firm. Right. Um, so there's a few reasons. One, because one person's ideas aren't as good as seven or eight people's ideas. I mean, we can all learn from each other and we can all think about things differently and those perspectives are important. Um, but also, too, when you're developing some kind of minimum rule uh, that we all have to meet, one, you need it to be realistic. So you want to hear what people have to say about 
whether they think it's realistic and they think that it's doable. But then two, uh, the more important thing is that you get buy-in from the people that you're giving these rules to. So we found um, throughout the years that the more that we have a top-down approach to rulemaking, the harder it is to enforce. But when we have a group making the rules and agreeing to them and having their their voice heard, um, people are more likely to embrace them more likely to want to meet those standards and more like, well, I guess, less likely to have excuses. <laughs> yeah. And I found that, you know, the getting the group involvement was important because I had a, a list of what I called non-negotiables, which was a lie evidently, because I said they're non-negotiables and people didn't do them for the last four years and still kept their jobs. So evidently they were not, you know, I have a, I have a different version of non-negotiable than the one I thought it was, but I think part of it is I didn't include buy-in. The other part is I sent a memo out in 2017 and, and forgot that people may never have received or may have forgotten about a memo I sent in 2017. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think we decided to retire the term non-negotiable yeah. <laughs> because of that. Uh, just because if you say a word over and over and uh, it doesn't have any meaning, then you know you don't want that to be associated with our new minimum standards that we want to have meaning. Yeah. And I think the important thing is we're going to have to, you know, when we get our new uh, case management system tuned in where we can track this more easily. You know, we report on these weekly. So if there's any, any exceptions, any deviations from the minimum standards, we catch them right away and uh, you know, hold each other accountable and, and try to fix the issue that led to them. Well, let's just kind of dive in. Um, yeah. So one of the first things we want to make sure that happens is when a case comes into the office, that someone starts working on it. It just doesn't, you know, sitting in a file somewhere. So what is one of the things we do to make sure that, you know, the attorney gets to know the client and gets working on the case? Um, so for those of you that are going to be following along on the podcast, um, just a little roadmap for you guys. There's going to be 10 of these. Uh, we didn't purposefully come up with the number 10. It just, that just happened to be the number that we came up with when we were done. But we, I like the number 10 because it's nice round number and it's easy to follow. So number one, um, is that we set up an initial client meeting. So when the, when the case comes in, that we have an amount of time to get that meeting set up. Um, and so that way it's on the calendar and you're meeting with the client. Um, meeting with the client at the very beginning of the case is really just critical to starting to build the relationship between the lawyer and the client. Also, you get critical information. I mean, the, uh, oftentimes the lawyer is the only one who knows what questions to ask and how to ask them to get the information that we really need to get the lawsuit on file, you know, it also makes the client just feel so much more comfortable that they've met with their lawyer right away. Um, and so that they have at least a voice if it's over the phone, but hopefully a face to go with their lawyer. So our standard ended up being that within seven days of the case getting assigned to an attorney team, that uh, an initial client meeting will be scheduled. But there's actually like a little bit of a caveat to that, Michael. What What is it? Well, it's not that the meeting actually has to take place in those seven days. It has to get set. So by the end of the seven-day period, the meeting's on the calendar. Uh, and the reason for that is ideally, yes, we would be meeting with our clients right away. But what if the lawyers in trial are on vacation or absolutely slammed? I mean, we don't want to rush through this. So if, you know, the it may be we need to get someone else to talk to the client, you know, to get some initial information. And but as long as that meeting gets set, get put on the calendar, you know, fairly soon thereafter but also make it realistic because what we don't want to do is, well, I'm in trial and I'm going to go do an initial client meeting during lunch or on a break when I'm not focused, either I'm not going to be focused on my trial, I'm not going to be focused on the client. So we also wanted to make it because it's a minimum standard. We wanted to make it realistic. Yeah. And two, um, when we were making these standards, we were trying to avoid having 18 exceptions to what the rule was because we didn't want the exceptions to eat up the rule. And then people never really knew if they were meeting the standard or not. Um, which I think, um, it, you know, what we want is these rules to be clear and easy to follow, because if they're not, then you're going to get exceptions. I mean, you're just going to get people with excuses and you never know if the excuse is applicable. And so it's hard to enforce. Yeah. And we, like I said, we just want to make sure that we can have, you know, our software system track this stuff for us. So when we, if people are making the appropriate entries in the case management system, we can just get a monthly or weekly report or go in at any time and see if anyone's not met a minimum standard so we can fix it. Right, right. Um, so 
commandment number one is get the initial client meeting on, on the calendar. Um, so what's, uh, what's number two? Well, the attorney will file suit within 60 days of the initial client meeting. Uh, and this one is a big change because I used to want suit filed, you know, within a week of actually having the file assigned. Uh, and now we've changed it to 60 days after the initial meeting. Uh, and then we even then we had a couple of exceptions. But first of all, why did I get talked into having such a big 60 day period to get that lawsuit on file? So we, I keep going back to the fact that these are minimum standards. So there's something that we want to be able to apply in every single case if possible. So whatever kind of case it is, whatever is going on with it, we want it to be able to be done within 60 days. And so as we were having the conversation amongst the lawyers, we said, well, really most cases could get filed within a week or two of having the case assigned. But one of the issues was, well, you got to meet with the client before you file the lawsuit, of course, because what if the client doesn't tells you, you absolutely may not file a lawsuit on my behalf. Well, we need to deal with that. Or what if um, the client says something that's a little bit different than the way that you understood the case to be? You know, you want to make sure that you're getting it right. But then sometimes when we get a case, we get it at the very beginning of a case. Um, So since we're a referral base, sometimes we get it a day after the crash happened. Sometimes we get it six months after the crash happened. Um, But when when we get it a day after the crash happens, sometimes we want to do a little investigation. Sometimes we want uh, some reports to be available before we file the lawsuit to make sure that we've done our due diligence and we have the right defendant. So there's research that needs to be done or experts that need to be called. Um, And again, that's not every single case, but we wanted this standard to be applied in every case. (laughs) So we needed to make it a minimum for every kind of case that comes in the door. Exactly. And do we do, you know, and often we do have to do an investigation on liability or see if the damages are going to be bad enough to merit a lawsuit. But within 60 days of meeting the client, we should know that. Now there are two exceptions. Uh, Mallory, what are they? So the first one is we get a case in and we're not sure if it's a case that's right. For our firm. So every once in a while we get a case in and as we're doing the investigation, we think, you know what, this isn't a case that makes sense for our firm to do for whatever reason. Um, it could be that we think that the referring attorney is better off keeping the whole fee and settling it in pre-lit because it's, there's not, it's not going to go well if we try to litigate it. Or sometimes it's just, we get the case and we say, you know what, this is a case that needs to be litigated in Iowa. And with the damages and us traveling to Iowa, it doesn't make sense for me to be the one that litigates this. Let's hook you up with an attorney in Iowa, right? Um, So there's a lot of different reasons that we might decide we don't want to litigate a case. But once we file it, oftentimes we're kind of stuck. I mean, it's a lot, it's hard to get out of cases once you've already filed them. But if you haven't filed them, it's easier to get out of it if you need to. Um, So that's, that's exception number one. Exception number two is if we're going to, file the case in some other state other than Texas, which does happen because we have a national practice. Um, If there's some rule in that state that prevents us from filing it within 60 days or some reason that we can't. So some kinds of government claims that you make, you have to give a certain kind of notice and then you have to wait a period of time before you can file it. And it's just a mandatory waiting time. So we, you know, stuff like that, you know, we can't file it within 60 days and we shouldn't rush to do that and break the rules um, to do it. I mean, we needed exceptions for those kind of things. And so even for these exceptions, though, you know, we we don't want people just to be able to check the box that, hey, the exception applies and then not get the case on file just because they're too busy or too lazy to get it done. So we also have to have a requirement that you have to let me know that uh, these are the reasons that we might not want to litigate the case or this is what's keeping us from filing it. And I either have to agree with you or I have to have not responded to you yet for the exception to apply. Because I may say, tough up, you know, suck it up, buttercup, file the lawsuit, uh, right. which I do say sometimes. Like, I know you have doubts, but this is a case worth taking. I believe in it and, you know, file away. Yeah. Um, so um, I think that that's an important piece of it because remember, the minimum standards are for us as the team, both the lawyer team individually, but also for the management team to be able to easily see if people are moving their cases along. And so, um, you know, the management team would know if an, if an exception is needs to know if an exception is valid or not. We can't be wondering in every single case, well, does it apply? Does it really? I mean, this is supposed to help us avoid 
having to go in and research the answer to every one of these questions in order to get a good report on a case. Yes. Okay. So the next thing is, you know, once you get your lawsuit on file, you want to start the discovery process. And that starts the written discovery. Uh, until this year, we could just attach our written discovery with the pleadings and serve it on the defendants in Texas. And now they don't let us do that anymore. They make us do these mandatory initial disclosures and we can't uh, send anything else out until those come due. I guess the, the nice theory is that the defense is going to be nice enough to give us like 95% of what we need in that initial disclosure. And then we just have to do targeted discovery. Now, you know, that's a fantasy uh, that that would ever really happen, but that was the intent of the drafters of the role. And, and frankly, you know, they're usually going to be getting that from us. I mean, we're going to be giving them all our medical, our before and after witnesses, uh, photos, uh, they're going to get 95% of what they need from us, but I, I have a feeling we're very rarely going to get 95% of the aggravated liability evidence from the defense in a, in a mandatory disclosure. And right. so we had to figure out, you know, how quickly then do we want to send it out? And again, my initial thought was, well, why don't we be ready to send it that day? And I got talked off that ledge too. Uh, so what is the, uh, what was this, the minimum standard for that? So the standard that we came up with is within 30 days of the date that we can actually first send discovery. So whatever that date is, depending on what the rule is. Um, so in Texas, it's it's the day that initial disclosures are due, which are 30 days after the, the defendant's original answer. In federal court, it's when you do the 26F conference, you know, in um, Illinois, it's when the court tells you you can and, you know. In different jurisdictions, it's different, different. And so we wanted, again, to make this apply in every situation. So we said within 30 days of the date that you're allowed to under the rules. Um, and the reason for 30 days as opposed to the day um, is because we do still want people to be putting thought into the discovery that they're sending out. Um, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but looking at the discovery and not just using form discovery is important to us um, and thinking about the requests that you're making and making sure that you're being strategic about it really helps move the case forward and is critical to the case. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't encouraging people to just use forms, um, that we were still giving people time to think about it. <laughs> but any more than 30 days, it may fall between the cracks or not, not get your stuff in time and you're going to start to run into a get jammed up when your expert disclosure deadlines are coming up or your discovery deadlines are coming up. Right. And again, they're minimum standards. It doesn't mean you can't send it out the day that you're able to, if it's ready to go. I mean, doesn't mean you wait for 30 days. It just, this is, this was the thing that we thought would be doable in every single type of case. So um, we're really thinking of it more in a case where we have a personal injury that doesn't fit into a typical pattern. Like it's not a trucking case or it's not a car wreck case or, you know, there's something a little odd about it that makes us need to really think more about the type of discovery. And it takes a little research to figure out what should, what should this defendant have? What should they have been doing um, at the outset to try to craft your discovery in a way that actually gets you documents, you know? So if you had a workplace injury, depending on what it is, you're going to have different questions and different requests for documents. So again, we want it to apply in every kind of case, not just trucking cases. Yeah. So that's pretty simple. So get your discovery out. That's the third commandment. The fourth commandment or the fourth minimum standard has to do with getting depositions set. And by getting depositions set, we mean like offensive depositions, not just letting them depose our clients, but right. you know, in a trucking case, deposing the driver and the safety director or the driver and the dispatcher. Right. Uh, so what is the standard for that? So um, again, we based it on the time that you can actually start doing discovery depending on the jurisdiction. So we said from the time you can start doing discovery, it should be noticed within 45 days to occur at some time in the future, right? Not to occur within 45 days, but just so that it's on the calendar and it's scheduled so you have a target date for the deposition. Yeah, so within 45 days, the deposition notices will go out for our, our what we call our offensive depots, the depots of the defendants people. And, you know, sometimes they don't agree with you uh, and, and they'll fight you and not give you dates. But 45 days is long enough to do all the meet and confer requirements to send letters, requesting them to send emails and finally just noticing them. And then they could, you know, quash them if need be. Uh, and you can go set that for a hearing. But you've got to be aggressive on this stuff, because, again, what the defense will do is say, well, 
we wanted to post the plaintiff first. And you'll say, okay, we'll depose my plaintiff. Well, we're not ready to post the plaintiff. The plaintiff's still treating and we don't have all the medical yet. Okay, well, when are you going to be ready to post the plaintiff? Well, we don't know. Well, we still want to depose the defendants. Well, no, not until we depose the plaintiff at some unknown future date. And you have to say no and just notice them and, you know, go before the court and tell the judge, look, they can depose my plaintiff when they want, but what I want to do is depose their people and I, there's no role that says I have to wait until they feel like letting me do it. And, you know, it, Almost every time we end up getting dates before the hearing uh, when we do that. Right. Yeah. And so it's, um, you know, it's making sure that we're moving that ball forward to get the deposition scheduled because, you know, the defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's not the friend of plaintiffs. Um, And so, uh, you know, if we're not moving the ball forward, they're definitely not. Um, so they don't care about having to ask for continuances and they don't care about whether or not you missed your expert deadline because you didn't have the evidence you need. Um, you know, this is the way that you are aggressive in a case. Um, but again, these are minimum standards. So we gave ourselves some cushion of time um, and we put 45 days here. Again, it doesn't mean you can't get it done within the first seven days if you need to or if you want to and you're ready. Um, it just, we wanted to make it so that you could apply it in every case. <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay, so you get your case, you've got your depositions set, you've got your discovery out, uh, but we want to make sure that, you know, the case doesn't fall between the cracks after that. What do we make sure, what do we do to make sure that, you know, we don't have weeks and months go by without someone looking at a case, which can happen really easily when you're working on your other cases? Yeah, so um, this is a this is a requirement that we instituted. I can't remember how many years ago it was now, Michael, that we started doing this. And it's gone through a couple of iterations of what it means. But we have a term of art at our firm that's called a file review. And a file review, I say it's a term of art because it doesn't mean just looking at the file. We have a very specific list of things that the attorney should be looking at and questions they should be answering during each of the file reviews. And they're supposed to happen monthly, every 30 days. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do more file reviews. It doesn't mean you can't look at the case more than every 30 days. But it's, like I said, it's a very specific review of the file that we require. And Michael, I'm trying to think how many questions it is. Well, I've actually got it in front of me. So, you know, have we filed our lawsuit? Have we served all the defendants? Have all the defendants filed their answers? Are we following the procedures for getting depositions set, which including have we drafted corporate representation deposition topics? It was in federal court. Have we set our 26F, which is the initial discovery conference? How have we sent out letters requesting depots? Have we noticed the depots? If the other, we noticed them and they're quashed, have we set those for hearing? Have we reviewed the discovery responses? Do we need to compel anything? Do we have a trial date and a scheduling order in place? Have we spoken to the client in the last 30 days? How is he or she doing? What's the status of medical treatment? Do we need to do anything to assist the client in getting appropriate treatment? Do we need experts? If so, who have we hired? Who do we need to hire? Have we done what we agreed to do at the last meeting? Do we need to update the star rating? And we can talk about star ratings next, although that's not part of the Ten Commandments. But we, we give every case a one to five star rating. Have we calculated certain deadlines uh, for Texas for filing medical bills? And here's the big one. You know, what should we do in the next 30 days to move this case closer to resolution? And finally, is there anything we need to discuss with Michael Cowan? That way, there's just a place to note that. And, you know, it's not, it sounds like a lot more, but, you know, than it really is because, you know, a lot of these things, once they're done, they're done and you don't have to keep addressing them every month, but it really is a way just to keep that case moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's to, it's to make sure that you're meeting the benchmarks in the case in a timely way so that you can avoid get, getting almost there to trial and realizing, oh my gosh, I am not ready. I don't have my medical bills proven up, or I don't have a doctor that's ready to testify or I don't have whatever it is. And then you have to get a continuance. So it's really to avoid that. Um, and, uh, you know, when you read the questions, it sounded like a lot of questions, <laughs> um, but it's actually like a one page document. I mean, all of the questions and their answers can really fit on one word document. Um, and it's really supposed to be not super quick because you need to do a little bit of digging and reviewing during the file review, but it's supposed to be something that doesn't take all day, right? It's supposed to be something that you can do with your team once a month that helps move the case forward without being a, a pain in the ass, you know? I mean, yeah. And that really was a hard line to, to find. And we've really messed with it over the years to kind of fine tune it is what's not enough detail. I mean, I think, I think it started with 
just a question, what, what do we need to do in the next 30 days to move the case closer to resolution, mm-hmm. um, our, our trial? And then, you know, we had to get a little more specific to make sure things weren't falling between the cracks. But then I've been too specific before, too. So I think this is a nice uh, a nice change. So the star rating, it's not part of the our 10 minimum standards, but I just wanted to mention what that is. And that's based on something called the Pareto Principle, which is that uh, some guy named Pareto uh, in Italy found that, you know, 80% of results tended to come from 20% of efforts. And I've actually tracked that in cases before where, you know, often 80, sometimes 90% of our fees come from the top 20 cases or 20% of our cases. And sometimes half or more of the firm's fees come from the top 5% of cases. And so we kind of have a, a star rating of one to five stars based and it's kind of a matrix on the probability of winning and the likely fee to the firm. And so for like a, a us, a five-star case would be, you know, we're more than 75% likely to win and we're more we're likely to get at least a $200,000 fee, uh, which is typically, you know, one of the a decent sized case. And, uh, and then, you know, going down from there, whereas a one-star case would be one that has less than a 50% chance of winning and, you know, a less than $100,000 fee, uh, which is something that maybe we shouldn't even take in. We got to either get this thing off our dock or even think about getting out of it. And then, and, and all in between, because the thought is you focus more on your four and five-star cases, not that you let the other ones uh, fall off, you know, you still have to meet the minimum standards for the other ones, but you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck if you focus on your four and five-star cases. And you also look at every you know, we re-rate them monthly because things happen in cases. You know, you take a deposition and you get aggravated liability facts, your chance of winning goes up, your case value goes up, your client had a sore back, well, now your client's going to get a back surgery. Well, all of a sudden, you know, that that value went up. The client had back surgery and unfortunately it didn't work and they have to get another one or they never work again. Well, I mean, it's awful for the client, but the case star rating just went up because it became a bigger case. Not that we ever would wish that to happen, but the fact is, you know, it does change the value of the case. And so we need to keep you know, keep alert for that so that we really, really push those bigger cases. Yeah. And the star rating can go down too. So you think that you have this great case and then you find out that your client was deported <laughs> and you need to figure out now, what am I going to do? I mean, now they can't appear for anything, you know, or, you know, or maybe they got arrested and it's some, it's some kind of crime that's definitely going to come in at trial that we need to think about how that might affect the case. Or, you know, maybe um, you thought that the the liability facts were one way and your expert comes back and says, Hey, that's not the way this happened. That's impossible yeah. or something. Um, and so, you know, there's reasons it could go down too. And, and you want to be conscious of that because you don't want to keep spending as much time on that case that now has a decreased value. Something else needs to take its place. You don't let it fall through the cracks, but you need to balance out where you're spending your time and be thinking about it. And if you anyone's thinking about doing some kind of star rating at your firm, which you should, uh, you know, the numbers have to be based on your firm and your docket. And so what a five-star or four-star case four years ago would now be a two or three-star case for the firm because our average case value has gone up, mm-hmm. um, you know, and at another, you know, so at another firm, what we might think is a medium-sized case, maybe a huge case. And then there's probably some firms out there where, you know, a, a four-star case to the, us is one they don't even want. You know, there's cases where... There's firms that don't even, you know, I was talking to lawyers saying, oh, I don't want any cases where it's going to be under a million dollar fee to the firm after the referral fee. And I said, one, awesome for you. Yeah. And two, if you want to send all your, you know, your one to $5 million cases somewhere else, yeah. uh, I'll take them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually to figure that out, Michael, we, um, we ran the numbers for like, it was a couple of years and we yeah. did some averages to kind of see how the 80 percent, 20 percent ended up shaking out like in mean, the top five percent. Right. And so we did run those numbers. We didn't just make it up or estimate or guess. I mean, yeah, it was based on math. <laughs> yeah. And every few years, you know, we'll, we'll need to run them again and see, you know, see what's what's happening. Yeah. Let's get back to our our 10 minimum standards, our 10 commandments at our law firm. Uh, number six is. Not only do we have to do good work on the case, but the client has to have some idea of what we're doing on the case, and we need to know what's going on with the client. So how do we make sure we do that? So this is another term of art at the firm, um, but every 30 days monthly, we have what we call a client contact. So I say it's a term of art because a client contact at our firm isn't just 
talking to the client because we talk to the client more than every 30 days. Um, it is actually a set of specific questions um, and specific information that needs to be relayed to the client and that the client needs to relay to us. So it's a little bit longer than just a short phone call. I mean, usually they only take maybe about 10 minutes, but it is a, a longer conversation to give the client an update about what's going on in their case and to make sure we understand what's going on with the client. Got it. So it's, we, of course, start off with how are you doing, you know, and then when they say fine, then you have to go a little deeper, like, okay, well, do you have any symptoms? Do you have any pain, any problems? When did you last see a doctor? Who was that? You know, let's go through the list. These are doctors and hospitals we know you've been to. Have you been to anyone else we missed? You know, do you need any assistance in sending up any future doctor's appointments? I mean, are you sitting here waiting, thinking someone did something for you? Are you still in pain and not getting good treatment? Is there any way we can help you with that? Remind the client about anything coming up in the, in the case. You know, we have trial on this date. Uh, you have your deposition coming up on this day and we're going to meet with you on this other day or you have a mediation, you know, just to keep, you know, make sure they know what's going on. And then anything that needed based on the case review, anything you need to talk to the client about also gets discussed. Now we have a little more flexibility, you know, like the initial client meeting and the file reviews, those are things that lawyers have to be involved in. Now the client contacts, it just needs to be someone on the team. Why is that? Yeah. Um, so often from on the day-to-day, -day, the paralegal is the one that's taking the call from the client and talking to the client because lawyers are doing depositions or they're at hearings or they're doing whatever. And so it's hard to drop what you're doing and jump on the phone with the client just whenever they call. Um, and so it's often easier when the paralegal already has the client on the phone to just go ahead and ask these questions. Um, and we didn't want to make it so strict that the lawyer always had to do it because then you're getting a bunch of calls from the client when you could have addressed things in a call with the paralegal the day before. Um, but two is oftentimes the, um, if there's a need for help setting up medical appointments, or if there's records to be ordered, because we find out that, you know, there's some other provider that the client went to that we didn't know about or some, but the paralegal is the one doing that. So, um, so, you know, they get the information from the client, they can act immediately to do what they need to do to call the, call the doctor or order the records or whatever they need to do to make sure that they're getting the stuff done that came up during the client contact. So it kind of removes a step a little bit too. Also, um, a lot of our clients, just because of where our practices speak Spanish and not all of our lawyers speak Spanish. So I'm one of them that doesn't speak Spanish. And so uh, the paralegal would have to be involved in that client contact with me in order to make it happen. So it would be much more difficult to coordinate that happening. Yeah. But then we don't require that the, it has to be the paralegal that does it because the other thing is not all our paralegals speak Spanish. And so sometimes we have to get someone else to do it. And the other thing is if the lawyer is already talking to the client, the lawyer can go ahead and get it done, take that off the paralegal's plate. You know, it's a team, it's a team approach, but it just has to get done by somebody. And again, the lawyer is the captain of the ship. And so the lawyer has to make sure that someone on her team or his team has gotten it done every month. Yeah. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now back to the show. These are, these are ones that we actually already, uh, any exceptions get brought out at our weekly attorney meeting every Friday uh, afternoon. It's not that we're trying to rag on people, but just that public accountability seems to have been the only thing to get these done, which is if you, if you're behind on a file review or you're behind on client, your team's behind on client contacts, we're going to ask you about it in front of everybody else saying, Hey, this happened. What's your plan? How are you going to fix this? And if it, you know, it hasn't ever stayed a problem. If it stayed a problem, you know, someone would have to make a decision whether they really want to work here or not. Uh, Cause we don't want to just fire people willy nilly, but these are minimum standards and, if you want to work here, you have to meet them because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to have a lawyer who didn't look at my file for a whole month and didn't yeah. think about my case for a month. I, I wouldn't want a lawyer that wouldn't keep me up to date, and, you know, check on me. 
So we're just trying to give the clients the kind of service that, uh, that we would want. And, and not just the clients, but our referring attorneys too. So what, what we definitely want our referring attorneys to feel when they send a case our way or that they partner with us on a case is that we're actively working on it and we can tell them exactly what happened. I mean, so if something comes up with a client, we can tell them immediately. And it's not 90 days from now that we say, oh, you know, like 90 days ago, this weird thing happened with the client, you know, and they feel like, yeah. how did you not know about this for three months, you know? Um, and so it's really also about offering uh, service to referring attorneys um, also. So they feel confident that, you know, we're not letting their their important case that they referred to us slip through the cracks. And sometimes the client will go radio silent. I mean, they'll, they'll, they won't be able to pay their cell phone bill and they won't have the cell phone anymore and they'll move and not tell us. Uh, so it also gets us, you know, when we can't get a hold of someone within the 30 days, then we start using heroic efforts to find them, uh, you know, sending them letters, sending them texts, calling at different times, sending an investigator out, doing a uh, skip trace to see if they move somewhere because we don't want to accidentally lose a client because then, you know, they'll follow summary judgment and we'll need to get an affidavit from them within a couple of weeks or they'll have a deposition coming up. We need to find them. We want to we want to catch those things early while we can fix them and not when we're under stress because we've got something big coming up. Right. Right. And I mean, we have had clients like that, that, you know, they're just down on their luck. (laughs) They're going from house to house. They're changing phone numbers constantly. And um, no, the client knowing what our expectation is that we need to talk to them at least every 30 days helps too. like, if we, if we have that conversation with them and they know that, not only are we expected to talk to them, but they are expected to talk to us. Um, you know, we're one of their first calls when they get a new cell phone. By the way, you know, Mallory, hey, this is my new cell phone number because they know what their role is too. Yeah. And I will tell you that these, you know, one kind of side effect I didn't think of is we don't get many clients calling us, asking us for information because yeah. we're keeping them well informed. They're not calling our referring lawyers saying, hey, I don't know what's happening in my case, what's going on. Uh, so it's really helped uh, with our client relations, keeping our clients happy uh, and keeping our referring partners happy. Yeah. And the less time that I have to spend as a lawyer calming down a client because nobody's talked to them and they're upset and they don't know what's going on. I mean, the more I can spend working on their case. So it's, you know, we don't get calls like that anymore where one of the partners has to call the client and calm them down. I mean, we haven't gotten those in years and years and years um, since, you know, because of this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got our case that's moving along. You know, we're doing our discovery. We're setting our depots. We're keeping track of the case. The client's happy and well taken care of, getting all their medical treatment. Uh, What's the next thing we need to do to make sure we're going to get pressure on and this case is going to either get resolved for good money or get tried? Getting a trial date. (laughs) Um, Making sure that we have either a trial date, if the court will allow us to have one, or at least a scheduling order that sets deadlines in the case. Um, to get the case moving. I know there's a lot of federal courts that they don't, they give you a scheduling order, but they don't give you a trial date. So it's really about getting the scheduling order and getting deadlines on the calendar that people have to comply with because nothing makes a defense attorney look at the case more than a deadline approaching um, and making sure they have their experts designated or the discovery done that they need done. Um, and it's the same with us. You know, we're deadline driven by nature for a litigation practice. And so it helps us make sure that we're continuing to push as hard as we can on the case. So um, commandment number seven is about getting a scheduling order or preferably, if you can, in the jurisdiction, a trial date on the calendar. Yeah. And then the deadline that for that is 120 days from the time that the first defendant files an answer. Right. Um, in Texas, um, that is very doable because in Texas, the way that you get a trial date is you ask the court for one. <laughs> um, there's different procedures in different counties, but you know our rules of civil procedure allow us to go to the court and say, hey, give us a trial date. There are jurisdictions that don't allow that. So we do have some exceptions for this one based on what the court will allow and what the rules of civil procedure in that jurisdiction permit you to do. Um, So the exceptions we have are if a court just won't give you a trial date. (laughs) Um, So for example, the example I gave with a federal court, I mean, you can't make them do something within 120 days. And if if they want to set your scheduling conference for six months from now, I mean, Unfortunately, you just have to deal with it. That's what you have. Um, in some other jurisdictions that we've practiced in, you know, you can't ask for a trial date or a scheduling order in advance. They want to give you dates as you go through the case. So they want you to get past written discovery and then they want you to do witness discovery and then they want you, but, you know, so that that could be an exception 
too. Um, but I have found that those jurisdictions, at least for us, are few and far between. I mean, you know, most yeah. of the time you can at least get some kind of scheduling order entered within 120 days. The only other one is if there is a strategic reason for not sending a trial and I approved it, because again, I don't want to just give someone the ability to create an exception to this really important role whenever they want. There aren't very many situations. The biggest one is that the client is still treating and you're on a court that sets rocket dockets, you know, like your client, you know, you file the case right after the crash because it's a trucking case. And you want to get that evidence while it still exists. Uh, but, you know, you don't know whether this is going to be one where your client's going to get better with therapy or they're going to need back surgery. So you don't want to have an expert deadline in three months. So you might, in, a, in a, that jurisdiction, you may want to sit on it a little longer. But I, then I have to have uh, agreed to that in writing for that exception to apply. Right. Um, again, not something that happens very often, but we wanted to make these rules able to apply in every situation so that when we run, run reports, we know what the issue is. Um, that we don't have to go do a bunch of digging um, and figure out, okay, why is this case not set for trial? It's going to be immediately obvious to us, oh, well, that federal court hasn't set the trial because they haven't had their pretrial yet, and there's nothing the lawyer can do about that. <laughs> or okay. Michael has approved waiting because this client is treating, and in this court, we're going to get too tight of deadlines to meet or, you know, whatever. We want it to be an easy on-off switch. So the next one is, you know, one of the things we also want to do is make sure that we are not settling cases too cheap. And the other thing, you know, so you have a, a less experienced lawyer or just someone that hasn't looked at the case just quite at the right way, selling it too cheap. But at the same time, we've also found, especially with newer lawyers at the firm, that they hear us talking about our bigger cases and big numbers. And sometimes people get a little over-enthusiastic on cases that, uh, don't merit as big of a number. And, you you know, we want to maximize the value of every case, but that's the maximum value for that case. And, you know, not every case is a seven-figure case, unfortunately. Uh, so what do we do to make sure that, you know, we are setting appropriate settlement values for our cases? So commandment number eight is one of my favorite things that we implemented within the last year. Well, now it's been probably like a year and a half um, at the firm. And it's a weekly case valuation roundtable that we do. We do it every Tuesday um, and we do it at lunchtime. So we have lunch now that we're in the office, we have lunch brought in um, and all the lawyers meet and we talk about each other's cases. So any lawyer can present a case at the case valuation roundtable. And the purpose of it is to talk about the case and talk about what we think the value of the case is. <laughs> um, you know, we get everybody's opinion and then the person leaves there knowing, okay, this, this is what I should send a demand for. And this is my end goal or end game for negotiations. And if I don't get there, I feel confident that we can just go try this case because I've talked to other people about it. Um, and uh, so the commandment number eight is that an attorney must present their case to the weekly roundtable before sending a demand or before just engaging in settlement negotiations. So what we found is that what Michael said, sometimes people get a little too zealous or they just want to get a demand out the door and they don't put enough thought into it. And they say, we'll just demand the policy limits, but your policy limits are $10 million and your case is worth a hundred thousand dollars. So your demand means nothing and it doesn't move the ball forward. Right. I mean, you, you need to have the right message for the right case. And so it's either doing a demand or entering into negotiations to make sure you're negotiating in a way that's going to get the best bang for your buck. And the other thing is we we found that some cases the lawyer thought was ready for a demand and we said, no, you need to do more work. Either the client should get another medical opinion or often you know, the half only half of the value in the case in my mind comes from the, the damages. The other half comes from aggravated liability and you need to do some more digging. You know, you don't have answers to these questions. You need to get take some more depositions, compel some discovery to find out whether we have aggravated liability before you can put a value on this case. Yeah. And, you know, we also think a lot about the jurisdiction that we're in and how we're allowed to present the case and what we're going to be allowed to do at trial. You know, in some federal courts, the judges don't let you do board dire. That makes a little bit of a difference for how we value the cases in those jurisdictions. And, you know, especially with newer lawyers that may or may not have ever practiced in certain jurisdictions, having those conversations early helps kind of temper this case may be worth this much in X jurisdiction, but it's worth a different amount in this in this different jurisdiction. 
But I also think, you know, two other things are good there from having the group. It's one is, you know, you do get, you know, no one's as smart as everyone. So you do get the, uh, one of my, our Rodney Jew expressions. Rodney Jew is a trial consultant that, uh, or a litigation strategist, I think he calls himself. Uh, but he does have some good ideas and that's one of them. So you do get, you know, everyone's ideas. You're m- less likely to, to miss something. But the other thing is lawyers are competitive. And I have found that settlement values have gone up since we did this because people want to, people want to do better. People want to one up each other uh, by getting more money than someone else thought they could get or more money than someone else got in a similar case. And, you know, it's been a good thing all, all around, I think. Yeah, I think so. I love them. I personally, I think it's a lot of fun and it's, I mean, one of my favorite parts of being a lawyer is getting to brainstorm with other lawyers. So for me, it's some of the most fun I have all week. (laughs) Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. Well, let me go to number nine, and this is probably one of the least popular ones, but I think it's important. And it's one that I kind of didn't message right when I first did it, because I, I didn't, I was feeling too much like an insurance company when I did it, which is, I require, and they're short reports, but I require a report 90 days before the expert deadline and 90 days before trial to be filled out and submitted to me by the lawyer handling the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not that complicated. Like the expert one is, you know, do we need report in this jurisdiction? Do we need reports or do we just need to designate? Because you need to know that, you know, do we need to hire any experts? Have we hired them? Have we given them everything we need? Do we need to do any discovery? Um uh, to make sure they have what they need. Do we need to hire any more? Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and for trial, it's a little more complicated, but you know, do we have our witnesses lined up? Do we have, you know, photos of clients doing the things they loved before? Do we have, you know, photos or videos of them in the hospital? If they have them, do we have enough before and after witnesses? Do we need to do graphics? Can our witnesses show up to trial? You know, are our medicals proven up or do we need to get a doctor to testify? Will that doctor come live or do we need to take a trial deposition? But these are things we need to think about. We don't want to be thinking about them at the last minute. So why why 90 days? I mean, how did we come up with the number 90 days? Because it's far enough. It's not so far in advance that it's hypothetical that, you know, you know, that you've had enough time to work up the case, have an idea whether it's really going to go to trial. You know, a lot of cases would settle before the 90 days for trial, uh, smaller ones, at least. Uh, you know, your clients, you've had enough time to do some discovery and you know, let your client's medical treatment to go to see whether you need experts. But any much, much less than 90 days, you don't have time to fix things. Like if you need to do more discovery, if you need to go find more witnesses, uh, you know, you need to do it early enough where you can actually fix any problems. And if I identify something, I need to have time to look at the report and talk to you. So if I identify something else that uh, we can have a meeting about it and, and again, fix it before it becomes a problem. Yeah. Cause you know, if you're doing, if you're doing the expert review 30 days before your expert designation and you say, you know what, I really need a life care planner in this case, you may or may not be able to get someone that can get a report knocked out and a record review and an evaluation of the client done within your deadline and the deadline that you need to meet. Um, the same with your pretrial evaluation. I mean, if, if you need to go take another deposition, there's scheduling involved. It doesn't just happen from one day to the next. And so you need enough time to get that done. Or if you need to send out, you know, another set of requests for production, you say, you know what, we're still missing X. You still have time to do that. But if you did it 30 days on day 30, that's your last chance to send a request for production. And if you don't get it out that day, it's too late, (laughs) you know? Um, So that's, that's the thought behind 90 days. Um, Yeah. And and I give people seven day kind of uh, bumper in case things are coming up. So I, you know, they're ideally they're 90 days before, but I'll take them up to 83 days before the deadline. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the reason for that too, is that Michael and the team want a report that's useful. So if you need to find something out before you finalize that report, that gives you a little bit of a cushion so that you're not filling it out on day 90 with a bunch of questions still <laughs> so that you're not like, well, this is still the question. And then you never go back and answer it. You know I mean? It gives right. you time to make sure that you're actually addressing what's in the report, but these things are like four questions along. I mean, they're not, 
they're not super complicated, but it helps you just do a double check to make sure that we're not going to have any problems later on. Yeah, I kind of see it like being pilots. Like, you know, you have your, your you get on the airline and, you know, your pilot and co-pilot have probably flown that airplane thousands of times. But still, every time before they take off, they go through a checklist. You know, are the flaps up? Do we have fuel? Do we, because you don't want to miss things. And, and it's when you've done it thousands of times, that's when you're most likely to miss a little thing. And, you know, the same thing with, with our cases. I mean, a lot of it's art, but when you get the little things done right, then you have time to focus on the big things. When you're always scrambling, oh my gosh, we have a deadline coming up and I'm not ready for it. Oh, we have to scramble to get this. We have to scramble to get that. Then you're, all your time and energy is taken up on that and you don't have the time and, and the calm state of mind you, you need to do to do the deep work to really maximize the value of your case. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I do my best work when I'm calm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but when I'm stressed and I'm scrambling, first of all, I don't like to live that way or practice that way. I, I don't like to do that. And so when I, when I am stressed or I am scrambling, it's rare for me because, you know, you're, you are making sure that you're doing those checklists and making sure you're getting just the basics down so that you have time to sit down and just think about a case or just stare at a police report until you think of a way to visually represent it or you're, you know, um, and that takes time. And for me, I mean, I'm the creativity requires me to just sit there and stare. But if you don't have time to sit there and stare, then you don't have time to be creative. <laughs> I probably spent 15 to 20 years of my practice in crisis in one managing one crisis after another, and I'm tired of it. And I'm glad that you've helped me get me out of that and into you I mean it's so much more pleasant to practice when the little things are getting done right so you can focus on the big things and you're not just always having to, oh my gosh, we have this deadline tomorrow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the last one, uh, the 10th commandment is that any case that might go to trial, the attorney has to set a pre-trial meeting with me personally, at least 60 days before the discovery deadline. Yeah. So Michael, this is something that you wanted um, and you convinced us all that it was a good idea, but what, why did you pitch it to begin with on the minimum standards? Yeah. Well, one is, Frankly, I've tried a lot more cases than anyone else at the firm. Um, and I want, you know, one, I want to have an idea about, is this a case I'm going to try with you? Or is this a case you're going to try with someone else? Uh, we try to always have two people. Although I think there's some arguments that it's better to have one person try a case. A lot of times or at least do everything, talk to the jury. We just don't get enough trials and we want people to get experience. And even if one person talking to the jury, having someone else there makes a huge difference and makes it a lot easier. And heck, you and I are do pretty well when we're together. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah. But uh, the only one I've lost in the last four or five years is the one I tried without you. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, so I want to be able to have that meeting. I also want to be able to brainstorm with people, come up with exhibit ideas, come up with testimony ideas. And, uh, but I need to do it at least 60 days for the discovery deadline because what happens invariably is I come up with ideas that require us to find additional witnesses or additional documents or, you know, visuals, those kind of things. And you need to be able to get them created, found, and disclosed to their side uh, in time to use them for trial. And if we we do need to do some more discovery or take a doctor's deposition, which a lot of times I just think of little things we need to do to, you know, kind of like dot the I cross the T discovery. Yeah. Um, that until you've tried 100 cases, you don't realize that this might be an issue. But when you have, you're like, nah, we, we better get this nailed down. Yeah, yeah. everyone, yeah, everyone knows this is what happened. But we don't have it. Someone's exactly saying the right thing. We need to get this nailed out. Uh, and so I want it to be at least 60 days before trial. Now, I am going to try to mix this in with our monthly attorney meetings if I can so that we don't have just so many meetings we can't, well, especially me. I'm going to meet with lots of different people that I don't have time to do anything else. But I, I do think that these are important. Uh, and plus, to some extent, I mean, you know, I can't and don't want to try every case at the firm. But most of the time, I'm the reason that the case got referred in. I mean, let's be honest. And so they at least want to get my special sauce or my thoughts or my strategies. And, and even if it's a smaller case, I'm not going to try myself. Yeah, I love the idea. And I think um, it's, it is a big commitment of time on your part. But I was super excited about adding this to the minimum standards list because of the commitment on your part. And every time I talk to you about a case, you have some great idea that I never thought of or or you've lived something that I haven't lived. So it didn't occur to me. I, I was thinking of an example. It was maybe a few years ago, me and you were going to try a case and I just never had this issue before. 
but we had a statement that was written in Spanish that was important to the case. And we had a, a translation of it, of course, but the rules require a specific kind of translation produced a certain amount of time in advance. And we were lucky to catch it like right when we had to produce it, but I didn't, that rule, it never even occurred to me that that was a rule or something that we needed to do. Um, And you just happened to mention it offhand to me. And I thought, you know what, we haven't gotten the certified interpreter statement, you know, issued however long it is in advance, 30 days in advance of the trial or whatever the rule is. I got burned on that. (laughs) Right, right. You've dealt with it before. So, you know, and now I know because now I've dealt with it before, but before that I'd never dealt with it. So it didn't even occur to me to look at that rule, you know? So, um, Michael's experience coming into every single case is so important, uh, for, for our firm and for the success of any trial that we have. And, and even if we somehow outgrow, you know, and which we're nowhere near right now, but we'll outgrow my ability to personally review every case. I think we'd need to at least get someone senior. If it wasn't me, um, to make sure that, you know, you just get, again, it's, it's kind of like the monthly case valuation lunches. Uh, it's just getting, making sure that we get the, the experience of the group and the, you know, the kind of the knowledge that's been accumulated over the years at the firm uh, actually communicated to people. And so that someone who doesn't try a case and, oh, why didn't you do this? Well, no one ever told me about that. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. So there were some commandments, possible commandments that didn't make the list because the minimum standards discussion was a group discussion. Are there any that you can think of, Michael, that we talked about and then ultimately didn't decide to put on the list? Yeah, there's one. And, I, and I'm still, you know, I went with the group. I'm not sure I'm convinced that the group was right, but it wasn't a hill I was willing. To. I mean, I, I always have the option of saying, OK, it's it's six to one or seven to one. We're six to one right now. Yeah. We're hiring one more uh, at least. Uh, but I always have the, the ability to overrule the group, but I tend to not to unless it's really a hill I want to die on. Uh, and and this wasn't one, uh, but I like the idea that we never agree to continuous. It used to be a rule like 10 years ago at the firm. We would say in the first phone call to the other lawyer, now, I just want to talk to you about something. I'm going to be really agreeable. If you need to extend your expert deadline, you need extra time to answer discovery, you know, you need to move things around, any of that stuff, I'm going to be perfectly agreeable except for one thing, and that's a continuous of trial. Under no circumstance will I agree to a continuance of the trial. So I'll work with you so we can both be ready for the trial, but we're not going to agree to a continuance. I'm just going to tell you that right up front from day one. And we stuck to it and our cases resolved more quickly because we would be ready for the first trial date. And, and um, you know, even when the judge granted a continuance, it would be over our, it would be opposed by us. And so then when they wanted the second continuance, the judge they already got one, you know. Uh, and but I got overruled that uh, that there were too many situations where maybe somebody maybe we should agree to one uh, that if we were too strict and when we needed more time, people were going to get us back. I'm, I'm not sure that that shouldn't be the role. That should, at least should be the goal, I think, is being ready the first time and not agreeing to continuances just because the other side is not ready. Uh, but I, I decided to, to not put that as a minimum standard because other people were so passionately against it. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, we were really, really trying to come up with a group of minimum standards that without question, we could apply in every single case. And I think for some of us, there were a lot of questions about the continuance one. That doesn't mean that we're going to just now agree to continuances all the time, right? Because remember, these are our minimum standards and ideally we're not agreeing to continuances at all. Um, and you know, we do try, we try to stick with that, but, uh, you know, we're, these are minimum standards. We obviously work up cases faster and with different, I mean, there's additional things we do. I mean, we don't just do the minimum here. Right. <laughs> I, um, I keep saying that because I don't want people to think, well, this is all you do at the far. I mean, this is all you do to work up a case. And, but no, it, it's not, it's just the minimum. And it's something that we wanted to be trackable um, and applicable in every case. Yeah. And the other reason I gave in on that one is that I think one of the problems with me trying to have standards in the past is they were just mine. And like you said, they were top down and I wanted people to feel like they had a voice uh, and that I listened. And if I, you know, if I never gave in on anything now, there are, there are things I won't give in on, uh, you know, the client contacts, the file reviews, those are things I will not give in on 
uh, most actually all the 10 minimum standards I will not give in. Uh, yeah. and, and and there was some argument. Not everybody liked the idea of having this to roundtable every single case before we do any kind of settlement negotiations. But that one I held firm on saying no. Um, yeah. Um, but we had we had a it was a long discussion that we had. This isn't something that we came up with in 20 minutes. Um, we started from scratch and we went from there and we listened to everybody's ideas. Um, we turned down people's ideas. We accepted people's ideas, but we all had a lively, long conversation about it. And at the end, I think everybody agreed with every single standard on the list. I mean, cause they felt hurt out and now they understand the perspective of it. Why, why did we want this to be a minimum standard and what was its value? So even if they didn't agree with it initially, I think by the end, everybody felt at least like they understand it. And that it has some value by being on this list. You know, I think that's important as you build firm culture to to really to have to have buy-in, to have people say that these are standards I'm going to hold myself and others accountable to. They really have to to have been heard uh, in the creation of those standards. Now, of course, when new people join the firm, uh, you know, they're going to have to live with what we already have, and that's hopefully the firm culture would just take them there. But, you know, probably every, you know, four or five years, we had to go revisit them to see if there could be, you know, any changes. I know we 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 didn't make any changes, but even our, uh, you know, the uh, Lencioni's six questions, why do we exist? How do we behave? So, you know, our core values or our strategies for success. I mean, when we have our annual management uh, team offsite, we revisit them. I mean, are these still really our core values? Uh, is this still, you know, what we do is litigate personal injury cases or plan. If we, once, once a year, we look at, you know, is that still what we want to do or do we want to open to a different practice area? Right now, it's still the only thing we want to do. But you you do have to kind of look at these things on a regular basis, too, uh, to make sure that you still have buy-in from your team. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, those are working for us and we're still working on the implementation of software-wise, but at least we have an agreement that we're all going to do this stuff. And and by and large, we already are doing this, these things anyway. Right. But it's just right. one way to track to make sure, you know, that at least the minimums are done on cases. And then we can start focusing on, on the ideal. And I hope that this has been useful to y'all. Uh, one other thing, uh, because this is going out soon. Uh, if you want to be at a firm, you're let's say you're a zero to three year lawyer, because that's what we're looking for. And you want to be at a firm that will invest in you, that will help work on your development so you can more than meet minimum standards. Uh, we are hiring two uh, associates. We really are looking for true. I mean, we've had a lot of applications for like 20 and 30 year lawyers and, I, and I'm complimented and I'm flattered, but we really want to develop people from scratch. Uh, and and that way we don't have to kind of unbreak other people's ways of doing things. We want someone that can start right away with ours. And plus there's just a, a joy that comes from, like I did with you, you're yeah. developing someone that's, that's not done this kind of work before. And, and over the years watching her and him become a master of the craft uh, like you have. And uh, so if you are interested, uh, send me your resume, michael at cowanlaw.com. Uh, we're closing applications on September 1st, but we're hiring at least two associates. Um, and I hope one of you are listening and think you might be the right fit. Uh, you'd have to move to San Antonio, Texas and get licensed in Texas if you're not a Texas person. But we have a great practice, a great firm. And if you think you might be the right fit for a family, uh, send me an email. Sounds good. I can't wait to see who applies. Yep. Okay, Mallory. Well, I will talk to you soon. And everyone, I'll see you all, or at least you all will hear from me on our next episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer-only content, in live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. 
If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan. It is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came. 